Welcome to episode 17 of Mike's Notes. Today, three things I learned from Charles Ponzi. Charles Ponzi is the namesake of the Ponzi scheme, although he wasn't the first one to actually perpetrate the scheme. There were other hucksters and fraudsters that did it before him, but he was the one that did it on the largest scale, which ended up giving his name to the scam. If you don't know what a Ponzi scheme is, It's an effect where you borrow from Peter to pay Paul, and then you borrow from Sam to pay Peter, and so on and so on down the line. It's sort of like a pyramid scheme, and one large group finances a slightly smaller group, which finances a slightly smaller group, and so on down the line. And Ponzi's scheme began in November 1919 and went through 1920, and it all came crashing down pretty quickly. At its peak, he was bringing in a million dollars a week, and in a matter of months, he was totally busted. But we're not going to get into the details of the Ponzi scheme, rather some big ideas that we can learn from, and what we can take from Ponzi's life. Specifically, there were three things I learned from a book about Charles Ponzi by Mitchell Zuckoff. Number one, history is never rosy. Number two, there's all kind of unique paths and conditions that bring us to different events in our life and different choices. Number three, how aligned incentives can bring about one outcome versus another. One. The first thing and the biggest takeaway I had about Charles Ponzi's life was that he didn't really seem like that bad of a guy. He did really bad things, and he cheated some people out of a lot of money, but he came through in the book as someone who seemed to be trying really hard. He did do things that made him an endearing character. Early in his life, he was working in the southern part of the United States, And someone in the town he lived in had severe burns, and he was the only person in town that volunteered to donate skin so this person could have skin grafts done and recover in a healthy way. And even though Ponzi was an outsider, he was the one that did that. He was very loving to his family. He cared for people. Even as his scheme was going down, he was taking care of people in a certain manner. So... Ponzi just wasn't that bad of a guy, especially when compared to some of the vitriol we heard about Bernie Madoff in his Ponzi scheme and how all of that came out in the news. This idea of history not being rosy or historical villains not necessarily always being evil was reinforced in a podcast that Mark Andreessen did with Tim Ferriss. Here's a quote about how Andreessen sees history. 
Yeah. And histories, I always find histories is where, like, I didn't really study history in college or anything, but I find history is this weird thing where the way that you're taught history, like in school, like in high school, you know, is like, it's, it's all these legendary people and they're kind of all, you know, Olympians, the founding fathers and these great generals or whatever. And it's like, they've, you know, you got the names, you got the dates and they did these amazing things. And they're kind of these great, like, and they feel like unrelatable, like, and you, you, like, you couldn't possibly like to even, at least where I come from, even think that you could have ever have anything in common with these people was just like a non, was not something that ever occurred to anybody. Like they're like, the, you know, the pantheon of kind of the legendary people who have lived. Um, and I just found like the, bio, the really well-written biographies that get you inside the heads of what it was like to be Walt Disney at age 20, right? Or what, what it was like to be, you know, I don't know, Car- Carnegie or Mellon or Ford. Um, or what it was like to be, you know, for that matter, William Randolph Hearst. Or, you know, the, these you know people we've all heard of, like... The really good biographers are really good at getting inside the head of what what it was like to be them then before they became <laughs> right before they became the people who ultimately made it into the, into the history books and and here we have Andreessen noting that we shouldn't be too rosy with our retrospection. We should try to get the full picture. He goes on to talk to Ferris about how those founders that we idolize or lionize they had a lot of trouble too. They didn't come out of the womb fully formed as geniuses. They didn't have divine intervention. They had to work really hard. In fact, it's Andreessen's partner in venture capital, Ben Horowitz, who wrote the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And there he talks about the lead bullet approach rather than the silver bullet approach. And that's that we need to put in a lot of effort and a lot of work to get anything done. And we shouldn't look back on things and necessarily think they were perfect or golden. Charlie Munger has this to say, quote, I personally think that the world is better for having Walmart. I mean, you can idealize small town life, but I've spent a fair amount of time in small towns. And let me tell you, you shouldn't get too idealistic about all those businesses he destroyed, end quote. Munger is saying here that Sam Walton may have changed the way a town looks in driving out mom and pop shops, but we don't necessarily need to idealize those places. They weren't perfect. There was a lot of challenges that in that time of life. And in the Ponzi book, we can see this on two different angles. One is the story of the newspapers. The newspaper that ultimately brought down Charles Ponzi was the Boston Post. And while they won a Pulitzer Prize, one of the first for their reporting on Ponzi's scheme, the newspaper also had all kinds of attention-gathering techniques. One was the primitive man stunt, where they sent someone to live in the woods for, I believe it was 30 days, and he came out wearing bear skins, and he had forged tools, and it was basically survivor of the 1920s. Another stunt they did was they had newspaper men walk around town, and if you passed a newspaper man and you asked, have you read the post today? you would win a prize. So people would just be greeting other people, asking, have you read the Post today? Hoping for a prize. So we don't want to idealize newspapers. Even though this was the time of Pulitzer, even though there was a lot of really good reporting being done, there was also things that were the equivalent of today's horoscopes and uh, some of the other content that makes it into local newspapers. The other part that I really noticed from this book was about education, and it was that people, even though they went to school or even though they may have been formally trained in one area, that didn't necessarily always mean they were great at it, and this can certainly apply to today. Ponzi ended up going to a pretty good school, but he partied his time away there 
and he didn't learn anything that would ultimately help him make the turn from being a crooked schemer into a legitimate businessman. Another example was Richard Gozer, who ended up heading the post, who brought Ponzi down. And this is what Zuckoff wrote about Gozer's time in school. Quote, there was a cachet of laxity among certain Harvard students. This was especially true of club men who thought a grade above a C was a waste of effort. End quote. And so we see here this idea that you don't necessarily want to spend all of your time on education. This was true for Teddy Roosevelt, too, who ended up spending just enough time on his education to get things done. So we can see through the examples of Gozer, Ponzi, and even Teddy Roosevelt, who was born years before, that just because you went to a school, just because you got a certificate, doesn't necessarily mean you learned anything. So between the newspaper history and Andreessen's quote, and the history of the education of some of these men, we see that it's not always simple what it is. There's a lot of shades of gray with our histories. Two. The second big takeaway from this story was how important our own unique paths are to the outcomes that occur to us. Ponzi wasn't the first one to do a Rob Peter to pay Paul scheme. That had been done before, but he was led to this certain condition because of his experiences. He was born in Italy, so he was fluent in Italian. He went to a good school there. He learned other European languages. When he came over to the United States, he tried to work in different financial sectors, and it never panned out for him. He went to Canada, and he got arrested for working for a bank that was crooked. When he got out of jail, he came to the United States, and he tried to do some more work before he was arrested again. Fortunately, in one of those times, his name was misspelled. Instead of P-O-N-Z-I, it was C-I. And so when authorities were looking for his history later on, they couldn't find it, and it let his scheme go on longer. It let it snowball into a bigger ball. Ponzi continued to have different business ideas, and eventually he settled on the idea of the exchange coupons. And the way this worked was you could buy postal exchange coupons for return address. Every time you fill out a return address label and put a stamp on it to send for your dog tags or for a letter from someone else, those didn't exist internationally. So these international exchange coupons serve this purpose where someone could send an international letter, put this coupon on it, and it would be legitimate mail in that country. What Ponzi found was that these coupons were equivalent to some amount of stamps, and the stamps were equivalent to some amount of dollars. And the United States dollar fluctuated against different currencies, but these coupons didn't. So Ponzi could find some place where he could buy a lot of these coupons and he could send them to some place that those coupons were worth even more. But he never figured out the last step and he never explained this to people that he failed to figure out this last step. He couldn't get this large number of coupons turned into some monetary amount. Ponzi's experience was about the only one that could bring him to this situation. And even as he got deeper and deeper into his scheme, 
he tried to get out of it. Zuckoff writes, in January 1920, quote, an angel sat on one shoulder, a demon on the other, end quote. So even then he had this choice, this opportunity that he could try to turn this money that he got into something else. And later on he tried, but he was never able to do it. As I was researching this episode, I found a similar experience for Bernie Madoff. He's told investigators that in 2003, quote, I was astonished. They never even looked at my stock records. If investigators had checked with the depository trust company, a central securities depository, it would have been easy for them to see. If you're looking at a Ponzi scheme, it's the first thing you do, end quote. Madoff went on for another decade because people didn't look. One of his bifurcations, one of his forks in the road, was this instance in 2003 when investigators failed to check a certain area. Ponzi had similar experiences where he was friendly with the newspaper men, so some of them didn't investigate. He also operated under conditions where libel in the press was a major consideration of newspaper publishers. In another book about the same time, Eight Men Out, the press is very hesitant to go after players of the Chicago White Sox in their fixing scandal in the World Series, and the main reason they give is because of libel. Newspapers were slow to make strong accusations, as compared to the current environment, where things are a little bit different. So in each of these situations, Ponzi's and Madoff's, and even my favorites, Napoleon, we can see how different choices, different splits in the road, taking one path versus another, led to very different outcomes. Napoleon's path is probably the richest or most varied of all. He was lucky to be born on an island that had just recently become French territory. He was fortunate to go to a certain school, and the rumor has it was that he only got to go to the school because the governor of the island, the person that was in charge, had an affair with his mother, and this was payoff of sort. Napoleon was lucky or unlucky in that he was not accepted into the British Navy, even though he had applied. So there were all these different chances for things to go one way or the other. And because they went a certain way, we got a certain outcome. Three. The third major point that I took away from the book Ponzi Scheme was how Ponzi aligned the incentives of the people involved with his incentives. Early on, when he was trying to sell initial shares in his international reply coupon business, he had a grocery store owner, owner that came in and talked to him, and the owner didn't want to put any money down, or only put a little bit of money down. The amount was inconsequential. But what really mattered was Ponzi talked this guy into selling the coupons at his store. And so he got this aspect of social proof in his marketing for his new company. And this ended up being very valuable because as one person did it, another person did it, and it ultimately snowballed. Ponzi even uses this exact analogy in one of his diary entries. He wrote, quote, each satisfied customer becomes a self-appointed salesman. It was their combined salesmanship and not my own that put the thing over. I admit that I started a sno small snowball downhill, but it developed into an avalanche by itself, end quote. So Ponzi's salespeople were paid a very generous commission. Ponzi was also a good judge of character, which his customers were not. 
but he realized that people would always want more. Their incentive would be to reinvest the money. Very few people ended up investing once and taking their money out. They would get their 50% return in 45 days and they would double up. They would redeem their coupons for even more coupons. Ponzi wrote again in his diary, quote, the average man is never satisfied with what he had. He does not realize when he is well off. If he has a shirt, he wants two. If he is single, he wants a wife. If he is married, he wants a harem. He is always reaching for the moon and stepping off into space, end quote. Ponzi understood the incentives that people had. The incentives for his salesmen were to sell even more, regardless of what they were selling. The incentives for the people buying the securities were to get even more securities and to get even more wealthy. This was a time of this great belief in America that so much was possible, that the West was still being explored, that Americans could do anything. They had just exited the First World War. And so Ponzi capitalized on that spirit. He saw what people were incentivized to value, and he provided that. That's part of the reason that Ponzi doesn't necessarily come off as this evil or vindictive character. He's providing something that people want and that people pay for. And even after the initial accusations, even after people write letters in major papers, not all of the crowd, in fact, very few people ended up taking money out. They could have got their principal out at any time. But many people stayed on and had this sense of greed for these great returns. I found Ponzi more relatable than I expected. He was a poor immigrant. He got off the ship from Italy with $3 in his pocket, which he quickly lost. People cheered for him. They liked Ponzi. Even near the end when people were redeeming their coupons, he provided lunch for them in line. When the lines were so long, he hired a vaudeville performer to entertain people. He would escort little old ladies who were waiting up the back and personally give them the money back that they had invested. When his car arrived, people would cheer. He was on great terms with the newsmen of the day. Ponzi was a complex historical character. The biggest takeaway I got from this book was under the idea of extreme ownership. This is a term introduced by Jocko Willink in his book, under this, that's the same title. And it's this idea that you are the only one who can fully own each of your actions. You need to be the one that chooses what to do. The idea of extreme ownership is really drilled home by this example from This American Life. They did a program on the Numi plant in California, and this was an experience where Chevrolet under the parent company of GM, was teaming with Toyota to create this new way to make cars in America. And the Numi plant was going to use the techniques that Toyota had developed and introduce it to some of the American workers. One worker says in the interview that he was on the line, and in America, you never stop the line. The cars always moved on, almost no matter what was happening. Whereas in a Toyota plant, the line was always stopped if anything was going wrong. This guy recalls being in training, and something happens, but the line doesn't stop, and it keeps going and going, even though someone should pull on this cord to stop the line. 
And eventually, the president of Toyota comes up and, and this worker thinks that they're just going to get reamed out by one of the top people that's organizing this new plant in America. And the president apologizes to the line worker and he says, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, we haven't trained you well enough to know that you should pull this line. This is our fault. And that's the big idea of extreme ownership is that you always can do more. I remember listening to a basketball analysis and I forget the particular player they were praising, but someone in the studio was saying that he was such a good player because he delivered the ball where his teammates wanted it. And this really struck with me because at the time, this would have been the late 80s or early 90s, there was this look at me attitude in the NBA where players were shaking their heads or rolling their eyes at how poorly their teammates would do something. But there was this one player who consistently put his teammates in good spots. And that's the idea of extreme ownership, is that this player, because he was better, he always tried to improve his passes so that when the receiver caught the pass, they could do more with it. Extreme ownership, as it relates to Ponzi schemes, is the idea that if you don't fully understand it, you shouldn't do it. It's terrible that so many people lost money, that people on average got back 37 cents on the dollar. But like Charlie Munger says, if something is too hard, just put it in a too hard pile and don't worry about it. Those are three things I learned from the book Ponzi Scheme. Thanks for listening to another episode of Mike's Notes. That's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then leave and take your book with you.